Hello and welcome to E3, Energy and Efficiency with Emily. I'm your host, Emily Mottram. This podcast is all about architecture, building science, and female entrepreneurship. So prepare to get nerdy. Hello and welcome back to E3, Energy and Efficiency with Emily. Today we have Mike Maines on with us again. So we uh, always love to have Mike on to talk building science. And this month we've been talking about the economics and uh, really following along with the pretty good house economics model of, you know, improve the efficiency of your structure until it no longer economically makes sense, which means different things to different people. If you're listening to this one, you've probably already listened to the other two in the month of January where I talked about sometimes um, if you're trying to uh, use carbon negative materials, economics might be a different conversation. If you're trying to um, improve the efficiency of your structure over the 30 year mortgage and what makes sense to finance and not finance, um, you know, I didn't give you any straight up answers there, but there are things that you think about. Um, but we recorded a fantastic webinar, which uh, I will let you know on the podcast when that's up and live for the Pretty Good House on Economics, where we invited a couple of other guests to talk to us about their ideas of economics, questions that they get asked about it, and um, we all just weighed in on that. So we're going to rehash a little bit of that discussion for you here today on the podcast. So welcome, Mike. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Emily. It's always a pleasure. So um, we're just going to jump right into some economics. Um, one of the things that stood out for me um, during economics, and let's talk a little bit th about this, is pricing per square foot. Um, we had Corinne with Tiny Homes of Maine on the podcast talking about how it's often a misconception that building a, a tiny house is cheaper than building uh, you know, a new house uh, on, on a site. Um, and that actually dollars per square foot, the smaller you go, the more expensive it is. And so uh, people will come in thinking that you could buy a tiny home for really cheap because it's tiny. And yes, it will be more cost effective because you're only building 200 square feet, but at 200 square feet, your cost per square foot could be 350, 400 a square foot versus, um, you know, if you're building a bigger house, the bigger you build, the less per square foot it usually is. Um, and so that, that seems to be a backwards idea for most people. So um, I know you said you have some tips and tricks on when talking about square footage. So I don't know if you want to throw those in yeah or, or yeah well basically basically i mean square foot pricing it's it's not it's not an accurate way to price anything the only way you'll know what something costs per square foot is once the project is done you can go back and and figure out what the square foot cost was um uh, but just it's it's when you're in the early stages of design, it's one of the only tools we have um, for pricing out, especially something custom or for comparing different projects. It is typically, you know, square square foot pricing is based on the square footage of the conditioned area. Typically, um, then you can also add um, unconditioned spaces like basements or porches or garages in, but those aren't always included in the square foot price. Sometimes they are site costs like uh, excavation or bringing in power are usually not included but sometimes they are so so basically it's, it's not it's <clears throat> excuse me it's not a very accurate way to talk about um what, what a house or renovation will cost but it's uh it, it gets us in a ballpark so like in maine right now you know 
a, a, a pretty good house near the coast of Maine that's not extravagant might be in the $250 to $300 a square foot range. Um, you know, tract home builders may be able to get down into the mid $100 a square foot range pricing, but you'll be giving up a lot in, in order to, to, to get down that low. Uh, more custom projects in nicer areas may be well up over $600 a square foot. New York City, things are you know, six hundred to a thousand dollars a square foot, um, but essentially every 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 house has you know ex areas that are expensive square footage, like kitchens or bathrooms. They have expensive, relatively expensive items like windows or mechanical equipment. And uh, when you start, when you take a house, like say say somebody wanted an eighteen hundred square foot house, and you put in everything they want into the house and it's 2,400 square feet. This, this is a pretty common issue, issue for me. And so then you start trying to squeeze, how do you get from 2,400 down to 1,800? And what you end up doing is you cut out all the inexpensive places. You cut out, you know, you reduce the size of a bedroom, you reduce the size of a living room, you do reduce the size of a, of a, of a, a, a dining room, but you probably don't cut out things like, get rid of an entire bathroom or cut your kitchen in half because those are more, more, more important elements. You may reduce the number of windows, but you're still going to have a big window ticket. You still have to have a heating system. You still have to make hot water somehow. And so no matter how small you go in your house, some of those items just remain big ticket items. And so all things considered, the smaller you go, the higher the square foot cost goes up. I think um, another thing to say to that uh, an issue that I run into is that um, we keep getting asked more and more frequently for first floor bedrooms. Um, a first floor bedroom means we usually have uh, more program on the first floor than we have on the second floor. And so now we keep expanding. So we either end up with more square footage than we want because we're going to cover the first and second floor and we have a bigger square footage on the second floor. Or we have the opposite, which is we end up with more roofing and more foundation. And those are two big ticket items that, um, you know, it, it seems hard to, to, to justify and go back to is where you say you want an 1800 square foot house, but an 1800 one story square foot and an 1800 two story square foot house don't have the same cost per square foot. So you can't use cost per square foot on that because I have half as much foundation and half as much roofing. Sure, I have more walls, but in theory, maybe my walls are cheaper if I'm not adding a lot of windows. Like roofing tends to be really expensive. And so we try to explain that to people when you're talking about square footage. Um, and I thought Dan brought up a pretty funny or valid point when we were on the webinar, which is that, um, you know, it's easier to design to a budget than budget to a design. And so as designers, you and I both know that, like, you know, it can be challenging to, um, to really give an accurate number when you don't have the design really well formulated because you can't go back to it. Um, and so we both kind of practice the idea of integrated design, which is, bring a contractor on early because they're going to know some cost saving measures that they've done with their team. So um, I had a builder recently ask me, you know, oh, how do you, how do you start working with new builders? And I said, it's always a little bit harder because I don't know what you don't know. I don't know how often I'll have to show up here. I don't know how much extra I need to provide in my drawing set to make sure that it's clear and understandable. And so um, that's always when talking economics is it's a lot easier to figure it out during the design phase so and one of the things that you might figure out is that you can't afford to build and i'm gonna say it and this is terrible but 
building is a luxury and um, sometimes it's not cost effective for people to build new. And um, I love the PowerPoint presentation that you put together that explains that we're going to build New York City every 34 days for the next 40 years, which is an insane amount of building. Um, and and that's commercial too. That's not just residential structures, but um Somebody had reached out about the podcast and what to talk about. One of the other things that comes up and, and something that you and I have talked about and something that pretty good house really it, talking about economics is when does it make sense to renovate versus build new and what are the cost implications on doing something like that? So. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, that's, that's always a good question. I've, 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 I've talked to a lot of potential clients out of designing them a new house and, and suggested that their budget would be better fit by finding an existing house that needs, needs a minor amount of work. Um, I think a lot of people want the experience of designing and building a custom house and it's sort of a monument to their, 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 their vision, but it, 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 is, it is a luxury, um, particularly when we live in a place like Maine where there's a lot of existing housing stock. It may not be what, people want to look at it may not be quite where they want to be it may uh it it may need um you know energy performance th you know th things like that are probably nowhere near what they would do if they could do build new but you houses that are already built have already um invested money in a lot of the boring things that you don't think about when you're building a house you know you don't have to clear you know typically on a renovation, you don't have to clear land, you don't have to bring in power, you don't have to deal with water or septic or anything like that. Like all those uh, big expensive boring things are, are already done. All, all you have to work with is an existing shell. And so if, you have, if, you're, if you're working with somebody creative um, who can sort of see you know, ways to bridge from that old into the new, there, there will be some compromises, but it's sort of like, uh, you know, re reuse what we have. There's a lot, um, there are huge carbon savings in not starting from scratch, you know, foundations and framing and roofing. If those are already there and in good shape, or if they only need minor work, then you just, you know, saved a ton on your carbon footprint, which is another aspect of, of economics. We talked about um, on the webinar is that um, uh, there's the financial cost is, is, is the main component of economics, but then there's also the external cost, primarily environmental, um, uh, you know, uh, designing and building and operating buildings altogether uses something like 40% of the total client, total global uh, uh, global warming emissions. And so we have, as designers and builders, we have a responsibility to at least keep that in mind. And so that that's sort of a financial and an, an economic argument as well. Yeah, it definitely is. And, and um, you know, there are some places where um, there's nothing for sale and you're sort of stuck with, if you want to stay here, um, I've often talked to my clients about um, school districts and their neighborhoods and they love their school district and their neighborhood. There's nothing else available. So they want to renovate what's, you know, in their neighborhood to stay there. Um, and in some cases, the hardest part for me is when, when you sort of walk in and they bought an existing home because they want to live in their neighborhood, they needed more square footage or they needed a different layout or they, they needed something that they, they needed to move, but they wanted to stay in there. But then you walk through the house with them and they hate everything about the house. And, <laughs> and you know, it's so hard because as an architect, you can see all of the potential. And at the same time, you have to say, well, economically, how much are you willing to spend 
you know, to, to be here, to stay here, to change this to, to what you want. And yeah, it's, it's, it's really terrible that there are no windows on the South side of the house. And like, how do we fix that? But windows are expensive and, you know, how do we pick and choose what makes the most sense? And do we renovate this one room and, you know, add the South facing windows and, and absorb some of this solar exposure and, you know, heating and reduce heating costs and get rid of fossil fuels? Or do we, you know, do something else that's really important to you in the house? Maybe you need to renovate the kitchen or, or whatever. And we put an extra solar panel on the roof and we say, Hey, you know, two or three extra solar panels and run that extra heat pump to, you know, like, like it would be great if we added a bunch of insulation here, but if we add insulation here, then we got to change siding and we've changed, you know, the, the impact of renovating is always interesting to me because during the design process, when you're designing a new house, you're like, do we put a window here? Or do we put it here? Do we take it out? And it's pretty simple and you can, you know, value engineer some of those things, but with an existing house, it's like, okay, well, we already have siding. Do we want to pay to reside the house? Like that, that wasn't an option that we were thinking about. And it's like, well, if we change this window, then we're going to have to, you know, even if what they want to do is take something out, you know, it's not as simple as just like, oh yeah, sure. We can take that out. Well, when we take that out, what are we putting back? Well, now we have insulation or now we have uh, the electrician has to come out or now we've got a siding contractor or, or you know, and it's, it's, $10,000 to paint the whole house or $15,000 to have all new siding put on and your siding's 20 years old. Like, well, where do the economics end in a renovation project? Right, right. Yeah, no, it's just tough. I mean, I think um, energy ner nerds like us like the idea of deep energy retrofits, DERs, like that, that's that been the buzzword now for a long time. Um Unfortunately, which and the idea there is 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 take an existing house that's not high performing and do what you need to do to make it into a high performance house. It sounds simple. It sounds like you're reusing the good stuff and all the things we're talking about. Unfortunately, they virtually never make financial sense. Uh, it just it doesn't the the uh, payback or the return on investment to dump the amount of money that it takes to do one of those types of renovations where you're taking like an 1850s house and turning it into a passive house or something like it's great great for the environment depending on the materials you, you use it can be good or bad but it's going to be so expensive that it's going to be just a very very low return on investment if you're okay with that then it's great but if most people are, are working with budgets and need to be careful where they spend their money um you know, replacing windows. Everybody wants to replace windows. Window companies are very good at selling replacement windows. There is a comfort component for sure. You know, older windows are drafty, and 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 they have have uh, because their services are cold. You've they'll they'll make you feel cold through 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 radiative radiative cooling, but it virtually never makes sense to go through and replace all the windows in your house if you're. If you, if you need to add a new window, that's great. Or maybe you replace the windows in like the worst windows or something, but it just, it doesn't usually make financial sense to go replace all the windows in your house. It may cost you, you know, somewhere between 10 and $50,000 to do that. And it will probably save you something on the order of one or $200 a year in actual energy costs. Like, so d does it really make sense? You know, maybe probably not <laughs> yeah uh, that's always the thing that i say people are like oh we're gonna replace our windows and i'm like wait 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 wait, wait. <laughs> you know like no no windows are like the last thing on the docket like 
you have an old wood window and it's rotting out and you're already doing your siding and other things, okay, I'll mm -hmm. consider it. Or you have a window that's failed, you know, it's got condensation into it. Okay. Then maybe I'll consider it. I'm like, but until you've done all the other things first, until we've improved the air sealing and the insulation and, and all of that, I don't know. Um, and it actually came up with the building science discussion group. Uh, I think it was in December, maybe it was in November, whenever it was that we were talking about, you know, retrofits and renovations is to, when we talk economics, and I think because we talk a lot about pretty good house and because we both feel really strongly about, um, you know, cutting down on our carbon usage is um, there will be a point at which you're using more carbon to renovate than you would to just have a slightly less well-performing structure. Um, and especially when it goes back into, um, there are some terrible houses that have been built, you know, even since the eighties, like you, you talk about the 1800s farmhouse that doesn't have a stitch of insulation in there. There are some things you can do mm -hmm. to make a big improvement. But if you're talking about a house that was built in the eighties and maybe it's got fiberglass in it and it's not air sealed very well, like, taking that apart and taking out the fiberglass and putting in cellulose and like, you're going to get to a point where you've just gone way over on your, on your embodied carbon and you're, you're making, it doesn't matter if it saves you money for the next 30 years, because what you've done to the environment has, has made a huge impact. Um, yeah, I yeah, know for sure. No, I mean, I mean, and, and the, the environmental impact. I think people are waking up to the importance of that, but it still seems pretty common. Even even a lot of my clients are still, um, they don't want to like see see pollution or create like visible pollution, um, but and they and they want to say and they want to reduce their operating costs, but they they basically say that they don't really care about the atmosphere and it's like <laughs> or 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 something something along those lines. And those of us who pay attention to the science and understand what's going on, know that we have roughly 10 years to basically eliminate carbon emissions, both operating emissions and upfront embodied carbon emissions, which is a huge challenge. And so the decisions we make are the decisions we help guide clients towards um, really make a difference. And so, you know, um, you know, wrapping your house in eight inches of foam will make it perform amazingly, but the environment will never ever recover from that. You'd be better off both financially and climate wise, uh, either go through yourself or get a home improvement contractor to go through and do basic levels of air sealing. There's, you can almost always make a house more airtight and it's always a good thing to make your house more airtight despite what some people think. Um, you can add insulation in key areas, even foam, you know, insulate the top part of your foundation with some foam if it's an older foundation. Um, you know, blow some more insulation into your attic. There's usually a good return on investment for blowing insulation. Once you've done the air sealing in the attic, um, you can blow some insulation pretty cheaply. If you're changing something, like say, say you're renovating your bathroom, that's the time to then, okay, while you're renovating your bathroom, you know, fur out the walls and put some extra insulation in there, cellulose or fiberglass or whatever, just get a little more insulation in there and uh, add a bath fan or, you know, things things like that while you're doing a project, but to go through and rip off perfectly good roofing or perfectly good siding or perfectly good windows, just to upgrade. It's just, there's, there's not a financial, there are arguments for it, but they're all aesthetic or, and none of them are, are, are financially smart, especially when photovoltaic panels are so inexpensive now that you can, it's always a trade-off to say, should I do this or should I just buy another PV panel?
Yeah, I know. And and that's the way it's going is that they're they're getting so much more cost effective. And for right now, there's still a 26% tax credit on, on installation and uh, products. And so that's a pretty significant deal. Um, and, and you also kind of look back and at people buying electric cars and what's happening with the electric car industry um, moving forward. And that's great that lots of people are trying to get off gasoline. But if you live in a part of the country where you're still getting your power from a coal-fired power plant, then you're you're actually doing a disservice to the environment by buying an electric car, even though it seems like mm-hmm. the right thing to do. <laughs> so you got to love the like weird things about building science that just seem counterintuitive. And you know, people often say to me, well, but what's the environmental impact of making a solar panel or, um, you know, batteries? Like as we move to full electric and all electric, what's going to be the, the environmental impact uh, and the economics of like, what do we do? with the stuff we have to dispose of. And I I don't remember where I read it. um, And so don't quote me on the exact percentage, but I thought it was really interesting that when a car battery stops working for an electric vehicle, it still has something like 70% of its life. And then that could maybe be used for like home battery systems because you don't have the same kind of uh, requirement on the battery. And I'm like, okay, well, that's kind of cool because people talk about lithium batteries and how they're not exactly recyclable and and whatever. But that's getting deep into some uh, non-economics things here, Emily, on a a tangent. Uh, (laughs) um, But we did, we talked a lot about, you know, renovations and when does it become financially doesn't make sense anymore. And, you know, when does buying a thousand dollar solar panel offset $20,000 worth of insulation? I mean, is it going to save you $600 a year? And, you know, is how, how many BTUs is that really, you know, right. uh, with, with a heat pump plus solar panel versus, uh, you know, how many extra inches of insulation and then um you know as they are getting better here in the state of maine and they're upgrading the code and and what we were talking kind of off uh while we were off the the show about um you know uh, a skin of rigid insulation isn't the same as a skin of you know wood fiber insulation and you know how your wall system works and and um, always makes a lot of the contractors that we've talked to at BS and beer and the building science discussion group nervous. If you're building a double stud wall on the inside, like what's under the siding, you know, I don't know. And, mm-hmm. and deep energy retrofits seem great, but if you're building a stud wall on the inside and, you, and then you got to take the siding off to see what's on the outside, all of a sudden it gets, um, we tell people all the time, it's always going to cost more to renovate because you don't know what is behind the wall. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and 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 one of my because most of my career both as a builder and designer you know the vast majority has been renovations and so just i i don't very often get to design these per- perfect new new homes which which is fine but it's uh because i've had this conversation lots of times it, um, i tell people like the, the easiest way to get the price down down it, uh, um, i'm it almost always costs more to do everything somebody wants to do than how much they want to spend. And so there, there's always a budget gap and we have to value engineer or find ways to bridge that budget gap. And one of the easiest things to do is just stay out of a space. If, if a bedroom or if there's a, if there are parts of your house that are maybe not perfect, but good enough, or maybe a coat of paint or refinishing the floors is all they need. 
like don't just stay out of that room and that that's a really good way to keep the cost down once you start doing something in a room it's hard to stop so just stay out of spaces if um if if you want to get the cost down um oh and then something else um as part part of the battery discussion you mentioned the the, the carbon impact of, of photovoltaic panels and just 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 i wanted to mention a good um sort of rule of thumb i've 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 heard from reputable sources is that a PV panel pays its carbon debt in two to four years. So within two to so there there, there is a carbon. Um, they they aren't completely benign to create. So 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 they do create a carbon debt, but it's paid off in two to four years, and they uh, their their efficiency drops by about one percent a year, and they'll usually last uh, up to forty years. You know, um, usually last thirty to forty years, and so so it'll be at a reduced capacity, but after 30 years, if they're still making 70% of what they did when they were new, their carbon debt is long paid, just that, that's a good investment. You, you have free free energy uh, that's non-polluting. So what, why wouldn't you go go that route? Um, and yeah, it, um, it is a very, it is a, um, it becomes a very complicated equation to figure out what makes sense to do. I mean, um, especially if you're coming on as a designer architect early on, you don't even know what it is that people want to do yet. They want to know if like, if they should buy this house, but there's a whole bunch of changes that it's going to take six months of design to figure out what they even want to do. And so it's really, really difficult to make an informed decision early on. Um, but I, I think one of the best tools we have to help with this is um, an energy modeling. Um, uh, uh, we've, we, we've talked on here be, before about BOPT, which is a free, uh, download from the Department of Energy um, based on the Energy Plus um, energy modeling software, um, but it has an overlay that, that, that is the interface that, that, that they call BOPT. And there's a few advantages or a few different things it can do, but um, it, it's sort of the main reason BOPT even exists is is, is is part of this overlay program is, is, is you put in what it is you want to do to re and, 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 and put in your energy goal, like say put in an energy goal of net zero and it will do the math. Um, it draws from a nationwide database on, of materials and installation costs. And if you let the computer think about it for a few days, uh, literally a few days it takes to do this, but it will uh, it will tell you the most efficient path to get to net zero or whatever you, your energy target is. So just I think that that's and it's free. It's not that hard to use. There there are some quirks as with any program, but just it's it's something that any any architect should be able to do. Builders should be able to do it. Even 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 most most homeowners could probably get something out of it. Um, so that's that's one one thing I use to try to help people make informed decisions, is to sort of show them okay if we if we go from you know seven air changes per hour to three air changes per hour to one to 0.60 passive house, here is what this program says is a reasonably accurate uh, savings. So if it's gonna cost, you know, maybe it costs $500 to go from a really leaky house to a really tight house. But if you're gonna save $400 a year, that would be pretty pretty dumb and it'd be pretty dumb to not invest in that level of, of effort. Yeah, um, I think that's true. Uh, as a HERS rater, I use Ecotrope. Um, I've also used REMRATE, um, which has a non-HERS rating version of it called REM Design that people can purchase um, and use that program as well to, to kind of help them build an energy model um, and 
PHPP or Wolfie Passive. Um, you know, so if you're you're not super interested in doing it on your own, there are plenty of uh, energy modeling software professionals out there who who can help you. And um, when you're talking about economics, and maybe we should really talk about this, is uh, I think that anything that you can figure out during the design phase, whether you're doing a renovation or whether you're doing a, um, a new house is, you know, even if it costs you $2,000 to have an energy model done on your house, if it saves you, uh, you know, more than you'd make in the stock market with the same money that you're going to spend on that house, then uh, it, it definitely makes a lot of sense. And people often will ask me, you know, I've had publications ask me or just you know, random people, you know, what's the, what's the low hanging fruit? Like, what can we do? And, and air sealing is always the low hanging fruit. And, you know, even if it's just a matter of, I've never had a homeowner build a house who hasn't been super interested. Not, not all of them are maybe as handy as some of the others, but always super interested. And, you know, you and a caulking gun can make a pretty big dent in some air sealing, you know, throughout the house. And, and what, what's a tube of caulk and some caulking gonna, gonna cost you? And, it, you know, yes, as we improve building, the first house with a builder who's trying to build a high performance house is going to be a struggle till you figure out all the details, but by the third or fourth house, they've got it down and they've got a system and they know kind of what they're doing. And, um, the kind of exciting part about building science is that it changes all the time, which we think is new and fascinating. There's always a new product. There's a new something coming out. So we keep up on that. Um, but the fact is that even as we move from what was 2009 and only sort of adopted IECC in Maine to 2015 IECC um, is even just going from from what we're building now to to code is going to be pretty good in comparison to some of the stuff that exists. Uh, so um, as far as economics go, you know, meeting those targets is it's going to save. Uh, money over the length of time that you live there. And in the high performance world, we're trying to get you to live there for longer. <laughs> Let's not move. Let's not, uh, you know, move every, what, what is the U.S. standards like every five years or something. And so like, let's stay there. Let's make it so enjoyable to live in this house that you stay there for longer. And to me, economically, <laughs> that seems to make sense. I've moved three times in the last three years and I am done. <laughs> even though my I bought an existing house even as a high performance architect and I designed new homes uh, and renovations I bought an existing house with um, they don't have single pane windows but they are old wood windows from the 70s and they'll be the last thing that I change on my energy performance route as I you know make it through this house uh, you know and you can start with things that are that are simple if you have an existing house. If you have an existing house and the right layout for it, a heat pump, hot water tank with the rebates that they're given from Efficiency Main of like $750 is is dirt cheap, um, you know, but. Yeah, yeah, or, or and, and they save somewhere on the order of $150 to $200 a year compared to an electric water heater. And so you're talking about like a five-year payback, which in simple, simple, terms is, is about a 20% return on investment, which, you know, the, the stock market did pretty well this past year, but most, most years that will blow away the stock market. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it, would, it would be, it would be, it, if you, if you, if you have a situation where a heat pump water heater would work, it, it's almost always makes sense, to, sense to use one. Yeah. Um, even if you still have a perfectly good electric water heater, it still actually makes financial sense to ditch it and, and, and put in a heat pump water heater. 
Yeah. And so, you know, when people are talking economics and you have an existing house, I mean, start small, do one thing at a time. And um, that actually came up when you were talking about this earlier is, you know, stay out of certain rooms and and whatever. And people are always like, well, uh, you know, say we do an an addition. So they're going to stay in their house and they need to, we're going to do just like a little 10 by 12 bump for the kitchen because, you know, they got a tiny house and they need a little bit more space. And they're like, well, why should I go that extra level on, you know, on the kitchen? I'm like, every little improvement you make throughout the house is going to make a difference. And absolutely, we should do this. And sometimes that informs where I might put something like, if we're going to renovate the north side of your house, we're going to add insulation to the north side of your house, because the last thing I want you to do is call me back because your plumbing froze. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, no, I I, I have a uh, project along those lines. Now it's a 1790s brick house that's basically a museum inside and out and we're adding a big addition and of course I want to make make it high performance but my clients are concerned that the old house is so uncomfortable they don't want the new house to be super comfortable because it'll make the old house feel worse but I think I think I think I have them talked into sort of a happy medium that will still be something that a conventional builder can build. They already have a builder on board. He's not a high performance builder. And so this is, it's a real challenge that it's, it's not what I would do if I could do anything, but it's sort of working with the people, with the clients and with the builder to try to come up with something that kind of works for, for everybody. And, uh, but yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, uh, it's, it's always a challenge to, 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 to figure out what, what, to, what to do with an existing house. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. Or, you know, there's a lot of big old existing houses. And I, I had somebody reach out to me recently who's like, I need to figure out how to reconfigure my existing house so that I can cut off the third floor. I, you know, I don't want to heat that space up there anymore. I don't want to cut it off. So, you know, maybe your clients will love the new space so much that they'll just hang out there and they'll, they'll have smaller square footage because of it and be living in less space because the new space is so great. Yeah. Not, or, or, and, and that's quite likely what will happen. And, and I've done jobs like that before as well, where we've made an addition, uh, basically up to modern standards and make sure there's a good door to the old house and then just close the door to the old house. And that's, that's the museum that you only use when the weather is conducive. It's maybe not what I would make for economic decisions, but it's not my money either. Well, that's sort of the same here. Um, You know, we bought an existing house that we really live on one story, which is the upper level, but we have a walkout basement. And, you know, if you've listened to my podcast at all, I'm like anti-basement because it's just a place for you to collect more stuff that you don't need. (laughs) That's my random philosophy, which my husband does not subscribe to. So if you see him, don't tell any, don't tell him I'm getting rid of things. But, um, in our scenario, it, it walks out the, the lower level uh, to the water in the backside in the backyard. And so we use that space actually quite a lot in the summertime. So we have a finished basement where we have two extra guest rooms and a, a living room set up. And so in the wintertime, I just, I, you know, I keep it at 50 or 55 and we don't use that space and it's perfectly fine. And then in summertime, when I don't need to really do anything with the space because it is below ground and it's cool naturally, um, we use that for, for our, uh, you know, our homeowners and our homeowners for our family and guests when they come to visit. And so uh, none of our family apparently is big or avid skiers, although skiing on the coast isn't really that great because we don't have any snow. Um, 
but so we don't have guests a lot in the winter time and so we're able to close the door at the bottom of the stairs and make that sort of a much cooler space that we that we just don't use so sometimes partitioning out of space like if i was gonna build this house again on this lot it makes sense to have that because the front yard is much higher than the backyard and utilizing basement space is one of the most cost effective ways that you can do something if you've already especially if you already have one or the site dictates it but if you've got a flat lot no basement there you go saved you money I right agree. there I economics agree. all day long <laughs> i agree no another, um, another thing I, th I think we touched on it a little bit in the webinar but but i wondered your thoughts on it you know it's when, when people are, just, are are planning to either build a new house or renovate, um, there is an option of whether or not to work with a design professional. You can buy pre-designed plans out of plan books. You know, some builders have some design capability. Um, is, is there a, what, what are the cost implications of, of, of hiring an architect or, or other design professional? Well, just like all things, there are good builders and bad builders. There are good architects and bad architects. There, uh, in theory, an architect or designer should be trained to save you money. They should be able to, you know, especially with a contractor on board. Like I don't buy sheetrock, so I don't know what the cost of sheetrock is today. So I want my builder to be involved during the process to value engineer out, um, you know, the, what the cost is, you know, because I'm not going to give you a dollar per square foot cost to to see you know what that is obviously if i have less sheetrock it'll cost me less money but everybody kind of understands that um but your team of professionals that you've put together should be able to get you the most out of your budget because we're designed or we're taught to think about things differently than you are. So um, I'd really like to totally change the entire country or at least the state of Maine's idea behind how much square footage you actually need. And I'd rather talk about what you'd like to do in your space and where you are throughout the day. And if there are things that we can use the same space for to get efficiency out of space, there's nothing I hate more than um, the big staircase with the weird space at the top of the stairs. Like, what are you supposed to do in that space? <laughs> it's always been mind boggling to me. And so as a design professional, um, I should be able to give you a better layout that really works for your needs and your space. And then on top of that, as a building science or energy professional, I'm also doing a, a an energy model and just practice uh, with what we've been doing for the last 11 years um, on saving you money living in it. And I think that's a conversation that we don't have often enough is just because you can afford the mortgage doesn't mean that you can afford to live here afterwards. Um, and so if you go out and you build a house just to code and you have to put $2,000 a year into your fuel oil tank, do you have $2,000 a year to put into your fuel oil tank versus if you mortgage out 30 solar panels and you're basically paying for your utilities through your mortgage and your mortgage is the same, you know every month how much you have to. I don't mean, maybe some people are really good with their finances and they put, um, they put aside a certain dollar amount every month into a fund that they then pay their fuel oil. But um, every time the fuel oil truck backs up to the house, it just gives, you know, makes you want to cringe a little yeah. bit. Um, oh yeah. No, I mean, I mean, if, if an average house is using $2,000 a year 
in in uh, in heating costs and with good design, you know, with a good envelope and good siding, and, and maybe with uh, say we can cut that by two thirds. So you're so maybe they're spending seven hundred dollars a year. So it's, uh, I can't do the math in my head, but say 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 with with some good design, we can save people a hundred dollars a month. Um, so even even if they can't afford that um, in, in addition to their mortgage costs, that gives them $100 a month that then they can put into a better house. So maybe not a bigger house, but better quality. They can up upgrade their cabinets. They can upgrade their heating system. They can go on a nice vacation, whatever it is. It's just that that money leveraged into a mortgage can really turn into a pretty good sized number. Yeah. And there's nothing worse than going out and building a house that, you know, say you build a million dollar house and and you live in it and it's terrible to live in and you turn around and sell it just to turn around and build a high performance house because it's not comfortable to, to, to live in it. And so if you go the route of hiring a design professional, which obviously uh, as an architect, I really feel strongly that they should be able to provide you with a much, much better service um, is it should economically make sense for you in the long run. Sure. There are things that, as architects or as builders, a really good build team, um, we've figured out that you should do um, because the other conversation that people aren't having aside from can you afford to live in this house afterwards is what's the durability of what you've just built. And so it might be a little bit more expensive to do some detail that an architect or a designer or a builder suggests to you in the upfront. And then every you get a bad rap for being expensive. That was something that Josh uh, mentioned on the webinar is, you know, we get a bad rap because we're expensive, but we, we actually just build it right you know you know or, or build it better maybe not right right's maybe the wrong word but like we just build it better from the beginning and we're giving you those costs in the upfront so that you know this this structure is going to be durable it's not going to be hopefully um you know as long as all of your performance measures went in quickly and another reason to have a professional as part of it is to check the energy performance measures because if you if you have an architect who who designed you or a designer who designed you a um a really high performance house and you have a builder that doesn't know anything about high performance and your design professional doesn't stay involved during construction you you may not end up uh, getting all the right things in, maybe you'll have a moisture issue and, you know, maybe one of these podcasts will talk about water because that <laughs> seems to come up a lot and <laughs> all the different ways you end up with water in your structure. Um, but even though there is a cost associated with working with a design professional or, you know, a, a design build team, um, there, it, it should net you better. And things that are better should always cost more, <laughs> uh, which, uh, you know, maybe not in the long run, because the, the thing that people don't take into account, and I've talked about this on the podcast, because you all are tired of hearing me talk about fast fashion. But um, when you go out and you purchase a really high quality piece of clothing, you expect that to to last for a long time. And so over the course of the lifetime of that piece of clothing that you've bought, it actually cost you less. And so, yes, it may be more expensive to work with the right builder or the right design team in the beginning, but it should cost you less over the time period. And it should be really customized to your individual and unique needs, which you mentioned something about plan sets and getting plan sets and have a real problem with plan sets that you can buy because they don't tell people climatically where they should be built. So a house that you can 
have that an architect maybe designed in Oregon or the West Coast isn't necessarily going to work in Maine. You know, we have higher snow loads here. Maybe we get more precipitation or maybe the insulation levels don't work. And so I'd love to see, you know, high performance homes that are designed for climate specific areas that are then implemented by design teams and energy teams to make sure that you're getting what you what you expect so that you do get that 30 years of lifetime of savings from it. So I don't know what your perspective is on hiring a design team. I would think as a builder and designer, mm -hmm. you probably have, you know, your own thoughts on that. Yeah, yeah, no, but no, I, I, I'd agree across the board in general, although I'm not a licensed architect, I, I do compete with licensed architects. And I think, think the process of going through licensure, you know, it doesn't guarantee you end up with a good architect, but it makes it a lot more likely. There's a lot more, it's it's harder to find somebody unlicensed who's who's good than it is to find somebody licensed who's good good and i absolutely agree that it's a good investment um i'm actually in the in the car shopping uh um uh, mode right now and i think i think there's there's always a lot of good parallels between vehicles and and houses and 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 one of the things is is it's interesting to see you know some of the cars that may cost more um up front uh if they're if they're reliable and attractive like like there, there are cars that are 10 years old that look 20 years old there are cars that 10 years old that are 10 years old that look brand new and a lot of that is the quality of the styling and then also the uh, the performance matters um, um at least to me like like I can't get a new Prius to replace the one I have now because the new ones are hideous and 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 they and I need to be able to go places that I can't go I don't want to drive my 12 mile a gallon truck i'm actually selling both my truck and my prius and getting one vehicle that will do everything but so it's kind of it's kind of been fun seeing um uh how how the equivalent to an architect has been able to influence the the cost and and the and the value it holds so like as cars age what you know what happens with their value after five years is the car worth 75 percent or 50 percent or 25 percent of what it was when it was new because i probably won't have it forever so when i when, when i'm ready to sell it in three years or whatever you know that that factors into the into the finances of 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 the decision i think i think i think houses are pretty similar i think design professionals so that includes architects professional designers and then also people like um structural engineers and energy raiders and, and, just, and just just anybody who's who's dedicated their lives into making better houses um I, I think they can add a lot of value um i think there are some builders who are good designers or design build firms that are good but i i'd, I'd say on on average if i look at just a random floor plan um, I can usually see an easy 20 to 30 percent of space that just doesn't seem necessary to me um, whether it's two-story spaces or entry foyers that nobody will use or just plain extra space that's not not designed out I understand maybe that's what the market wants but if you ignore if you ignore that aspect just with good design if you can reduce your volume by 30 percent and still have a lovely structure or maybe a more attractive house because it's not oversized that translates directly into the cost of construction and the and the cost of and the operating costs as well because it costs money to heat and cool and ventilate all that space 
I don't know who's driving what the market wants anyway, because we've repeatedly had people who have come into our neighborhood who are like, this is exactly what I want. And it didn't exist. And, you know, we're we're taking that three bedroom, two and a half bath and squeezing it down to 1700 square feet. Like, can you live in 1700 square feet? Absolutely. All day long. Do you need 2500 square feet? No, you end up with rooms you never go in. You don't use. They collect stuff. They hold your junk, you know. but I also keep hearing um, repeatedly, and in fact, in the last two or three weeks, most of the people who have come to me have said, I want 800 square feet to 1,000 square feet, or you know, maybe I want 1,400 square feet. Um, and they want smaller houses, and they're like, it doesn't exist on the market right now because it either isn't being sold because people already live in those. Um, but also, you take a look at it, and I, I, I make this argument all the time, and, and I know you live in Maine, you don't live in Florida, but if you go to Florida, you'd never expect to have a basement. You just wouldn't. And there are plenty of people live there who have no problems living there. <laughs> um, so you don't necessarily need to have a basement in Maine. And yes, the whole adage of like, you know, people had basements to store things because we get snow and, and, and all of that. But I would much rather have a garage than a basement. So if if we're going to talk about what, you know, picking and choosing, I would much rather have a garage because I don't want to scrape my windows. I don't need to store stuff in the basement. Let's not scrape the windows. And how many people are really living the the old uh, farming life where they they need the basement storage for, you know, canned goods or or whatever? Um, You know, some people, yes, some people, no. Um, and, And so it's a perception thing. I can't tell you how popular one neighborhood in Route 1 in Falmouth is, and they must have the tiniest little houses and like 900 square feet. And the people don't complain about it because that neighborhood is awesome. So (laughs) I think we need to flip the script on, let's start creating more of these neighborhoods that people want to live in. I mean, these houses are less than 20 feet apart. They're tiny, but they're on the water or near the water or they provide a neighborhood um there's not a square footage requirement i don't think at kelsey brook in uh, freeport but all of those people wanted to live in sort of a wooded neighborhood and they created this beautiful neighborhood that people will always want to live in because it has this sense of place and so i think that we're we're miscommunicating size and what we need and replacing that with quality of life and quality of space and quality of the neighborhoods that we live in. So um, that's my, my two cents on economics is maybe we don't really need all this extra space. We just need better space. And that is what a design professional and a really good team, you know, whether it's a team of developers who are creating these neighborhoods where people want to live. It goes back to, um, I think it's called place-based planning, which if you've ever been in any of the really cool downtowns, I would say that minus the really big L.L. Bean building, a lot of Freeport did that, which is that the houses uh, and the businesses were all on a certain scale, and you don't realize why you feel good in Freeport, I mean, minus the fact that you're shelling out money and buying things seems to make people happy, but <laughs> but you feel good walking down the street in Freeport because it has a, has a certain feel and aesthetic, and a lot of place-based planning is planned around that, which is you know how many windows are there on the street facade and how high are they off the floor and you can take that to neighborhood planning everywhere so. oh sure well, yeah 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 exactly no um or in fact both um freeport is often used in national discussions on how to design uh attractive you know um how to design downtown type areas that 
people want to be. And I, I've read about their 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 neighborhood, their their, their downtown neighborhoods in uh, uh, Cleveland, Toronto, Chicago, um, not Chicago, um, uh, Denver that I've I've been to that that all have these sort of walkable downtown areas that that are really uh, places you want to be. Yeah. Um, there, there's a neighborhood out on Nantucket where I used to live called Sconset that that has a, that was actually a model for new urbanism, which is now kind of a, a not not preferred term, but it's it's the same sort of idea of just making people scale neighborhoods that have the things that people actually care about instead of the things that realtors think people should care about, yeah. and 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 it's all about scale and details and actually interacting with your neighbors. Um, not that everybody wants to do that, but for the people who um, who do, the, 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 there are ways to design for that. And when you get people onto smaller lots and you have reproducible designs, just just a, it's a way to drive the costs down and the quality of life up at the same time. Yep, and I think that's the the way I'd like to see it going. You know, in the future, is you know whether it makes sense economically to renovate the things that we have, whether it makes sense to make more of these pocket neighbor. Hoods. Um, we've often we've talked, you know, from the carbon standpoint of like it's great if you have a a, a passive house and it's in the middle of nowhere. Um, that's really not as uh, efficient as you know maybe a smaller home in a tighter neighborhood in you know that's that's built you know to a pretty good house standard. And so yeah. um, we always talk about pretty good house, and I think uh, the answer to economics is it's not a simple question and. Um, Although we're going to flip the script and not talk about team uh, in the month of February, we're actually going to talk about climate in the month of February and jump onto team in the month of March. Um, having a really good team should bring you what you want and should make economic sense. Even though you think that that's a cost, um, it's really a value and you should think of, you know, paying your design teams as a value, not as a, you know, standalone cost. Sure. Well, one other thing I think we, we should just touch on, although though we both tend to do single family design, just um, the rest of the world lives in multifamilies and passive house makes a lot more sense in multifamilies. Just there, there are a lot of advantages to multifamilies. I think a lot of architecture firms, um, or just just a lot of the market are going towards multifamily. There, it's reduced upfront costs, reduced operating costs, reduced carbon emissions. It's just it has everything going for it. Except Americans are used to living in single-family houses. I think that's really the only downside to multifamilies. But just we should be, as we're transitioning to a new low-carbon economy, we should be including discussions of multifamilies when we're talking about housing. Um, not everybody can live in a single family house in the countryside. Oh, sure. Absolutely. And actually, as you say that, I have one multifamily coming up on board. It's going to be a four unit. I have uh, somebody nice. who asked me about helping them turn their single family into a different four unit. And I have another client who has a property that they want to do some multifamily housing on and and yes we didn't talk about that as as kind of the overarching rule of thumb but yeah density and you know getting into the neighborhoods and housing crisis and all kinds of other things are are another and maybe we should talk about that during climate is you know 
part of the United States problem, um, and I talked a little bit about this, I think, um, which was they're building a ton of single family developments um, in Lancaster County and the air quality is getting a lot better and they have a lot more people coming in and we're building on all the farmland that we've been you know, using in some of the best prime land in all of the country and we just keep building on that and it keeps getting spreading and spreading and spreading. Um, the same idea with, you know, tiny houses as ADUs to park in the backyard to improve density. And so we're starting to have the density question here, but a lot of the United States is car-based. We don't have a lot of great public transportation and great ways to get around. Um, and uh, in Europe, you can pretty much take public transportation anywhere. I lived in Rome for six months and, you know, aside from the 84 bus, which you didn't take because that was a safety precaution, um, all the rest of I didn't have a car for six months and I never missed it once. I didn't need it. You know, could walk to the store, you could walk to the market. You, they had a different, they, they didn't have, you know, a pantry load full of, of, probably stuff you shouldn't eat. So we won't even <laughs> talk about the, you know, the health crisis and our access to, uh, you know, our access to foods that we don't really want or shouldn't eat. But, you know, we walked to the market and we picked up what we were going to cook for dinner. And, you know, that probably made economic sense for a lot of reasons. You're eating things that are fresh, you're getting out and you're walking, you're not throwing away stuff that you, you know, I hate the grocery store. So if I only have to go like once every two weeks, that's great. But sometimes then fresh vegetables and stuff either rot in your refrigerator or you only buy enough for the beginning of the week and to get to the end of the week, it's like pasta for dinner, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> that's what you've got left. Well, and if you live in a place with walkable markets, which, you know, throughout human history, we've had, what um, uh, we've had, had individual cars here for, maybe 80, 80 years, 80 or 90 years, like it's, it's a pretty recent invention through almost human history. You know, you go to the market to get your stuff. If you're beyond the hunter-gatherer society, just if you're, if, you're, if you're living in civilization, then there's the local market and then you don't need things like a giant walk-in pantry or a giant kitchen at all. You don't need multiple refrigerators and freezers and all that good stuff that I have because I'm a homesteader out in the country. But I, I understand that there are aspects of my lifestyle that aren't the ideal uh, for most people so just yeah um uh, living living in an urban area where you have walkable markets you can further reduce your your living space and, and your carbon footprint well and we don't live sort of the same way that a lot of europeans do where they have multi-generational living that seems to be That's a lot less too. prevalent in the united states where um you know it was cost effective or you would save money because the older at retirement age level would stay be home for the children in the house and then you'd have um, the the middle portion of it the parents would be out and about you know doing work and and making money and so we we don't kind of live in that lifestyle where you have multi-generational living where you you have multiple people living in the same residence you know we don't do that quite as much here uh in the united states either so but anyway that was a really great we tried to keep it to a half an hour and we failed miserably but it's always a fun discussion so a great discussion on economics i am I sure agree. that as pretty good house comes around and we learn more there'll be plenty more information on prettygoodhouse.org we will talk about economics again because it seems to fall into a lot of conversations. Um, but I think this is a great way to kind of end out the month of January. So thanks for being on today, Mike. And thanks for having me. We'll catch you again next time. Uh, what's the next BS and beer discussion? Do we have a date yet? 
Uh, we do have a date, February <laughs> February 20th at Lake St. George Brewing in Liberty, Maine. Topic uh, to be determined. All right. So stay tuned and we'll let you know what the topic's going to be at BS and Beer. So thanks again and uh, have a great weekend.